Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So here we are in the bottom of the ninth inning. Two outs and running first base. Mark Knutson, the tall right-hander, trying to nail this one down. He has thrown a gem to this point. Eight and two-thirds innings, giving up just three hits and looking for his fourth complete game for the speed and perhaps to secure his 15th victory. He's got a 3-1 to one lead here in the bottom of the ninth, but at the plate is the guy who has two of those hits, Manny Randawa. A single to center and a double to right so far. Knutson into his windup. Here's the pitch, and he throws a fastball right by Randawa for strike one. Randawa a bit tardy on that swing. Now we're ready for the next pitch. The windup, and here it comes. There's a swing and a long one. Into the gap in right center field, way back towards the wall. It's off the wall. Bichette can't get there. He's chasing it down, and out of nowhere comes Ellis Burke. He'll get to the ball first. The run's going to score. Randawa is around second. He's digging for three. Here comes the throw from Burks. It's going to be close. Here's the slide. It's it's the park-adjusted Rockies podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Mark Knudsen and Manny Randawa. To understand what's happening in Major League Baseball right now, it helps to understand some of the history of the labor issues that plagued the sport more than a quarter century ago. On this special episode of the Park Adjusted Rockies podcast, we turn to the original voice of the Colorado Rockies, Wayne Hagen, to tell us what it was like all those years ago when a fledgling big league franchise in just its second season in existence was caught up in the middle of the last big collective bargaining battle, which ended up costing us the 1994 World Series. Will things turn out better this time? Well, they can't turn out any worse. Wayne Hagen pinch hits for Manny this week, so stay with us. You could learn something. Back with the opening pitch right after this. For the best selection of autographs and memorabilia from your favorite sports stars past and present, look no further than denverautographs.com. Find what you're after on the web or at either of their two Metro Denver locations, Colorado Mills Mall and Flatirons Mall, Broncos, Rockies, Avs, Nuggets, and much more. It's all at denverautographs.com. Learning life skills through baseball, USA Prime is more than just travel baseball. We mentor young athletes in areas like teamwork and skill development. It's about more than winning weekend tournaments. It's about showing young players how to achieve their goals in baseball and beyond. Contact Scott Horman at Colorado at gmail.com for more information. There are a lot of baseball fans out there who were either too young or not even born the last time there was a work stoppage in Major League Baseball. They've seen lockouts and strikes in other sports uh, during the last quarter century, but nothing in baseball. So there's a lot of people that don't understand the contentious relationship that used to exist between owners and players, and now maybe starting to go back that direction. One guy who does understand that is somebody who's going to pinch it for Manny this week. The original voice of the Colorado Rockies, Mr. Wayne Hagen, joins the the podcast. And Wayne, uh, very glad to have you here. You're a presence on this show every week where they're open, but we're very glad to have you this week. Well, I appreciate it, Mark. Always a pleasure to be with you. I saw you pitch. I chronicled how you pitched. I'm sorry. And you had a nice career. You always, you're always very, uh, I guess, in many ways, almost shy about it. But well, you, you know, to get to the major leagues, brother. That's that's a hard yeah, you know, thing to do. I was a Bill Mazeroski once described me. I don't know if he wrote this, but someone in his annual wrote, once described me as pedestrian, and I was really upset about that until I thought about it for a second. Average major league pitcher. I'll take it. That's not bad. I'm, I, I was an average major pitcher, and that's I'm pr- I'm proud of that. So we'll, well go. Take we'll go the from average there, yeah. out and just yeah. say major league pitcher. Yeah. That's yeah. where you went. Yeah. So it was all it was all good. Um, it wasn't all good back in 1994 and 1995. Now, previous to that, there'd been plenty. You were part of probably several work stoppages in the 80s when you were broadcasting for the Oakland A's and play, teams like that. But uh, in 1994, 
things were contentious. Again, I was part of the labor negotiations in 1990 when we missed, I think, a day or two and made those games up and everything got done. But then it, things really came to a head in 1994. The players uh, staged a strike in August and, and there was no World Series. It lingered all during the offseason. Delay in spring training they started with it, replacement players, which was an ugly thing. It was especially ugly for the Colorado Rockies because it was only the third year of, of, of existence for the team. Second year, actually, that was cut short. And you were the Rockies broadcaster back then. So I know for a fledgling franchise trying to get on its feet, trying to make a, a place for itself in Major League Baseball, it was, the timing was horrible. It definitely was, Mark. And what people don't realize is that if you go back to 1993 playing at Mile High Stadium, the crowds were so large enormous the rockies were 17,000 shy of 4.5 million people that's incredible and in 1994 the year you're talking about when that happened in august Mm -hmm. and the work stoppage and the season was over the world series wasn't played the attendance record that the rockies established was going to be broken yet again by rockies Mm -hmm. and that's the thing that i take pride in because I think back to 1995, the opening of the brand new stadium in this Rocky Mountain time zone, Coors Field was just about ready to become what it is today, a gem. They've done a great job with it. But if I look back to this franchise, there are two teams that I thought really were hurt in the work stoppage of 1994. The Montreal Expos had yep. a six-game lead in the East, yep. and that was, you know, Larry Walker and company. They were a yep. fantastic baseball team. And I think the Rockies. I think the Rockies mm-hmm. were, were definitely hurt by all of it simply because those fans, those, those first two years, made this franchise. The oh, poor no Marlins just have not yep. had that yet. Yep. <laughs> you know, Still. all these years later. But yep. the Rockies fans made this franchise, and that's why. I think it's always going to be important to realize if you're management or ownership of the Colorado Rockies, you owe these fans a little bit more than, say, these other franchises do, mm. because these fans made your franchise success. Yeah, yeah those, those days were astounding. I still shake my head looking at some of those crowds. I mean, I, I went out there one night and got hammered, and Don Baylor came to take me off the mound, and I was walking the dugout getting a standing ovation from 60,000 people and wondering to myself, were you people even watching the game? <laughs> I don't think the results don't, didn't matter as much as they were just happy to have baseball here. And um, it, was, it was obviously a wonderful time. But, uh, and, and you make a good point. They were, the Rockies would have set a new attendance record in 1994 had the season played out. There was two or three homestands left. Um, not that they were going to make the postseason that year, but they did the following year. So uh, who knows? But that first year, that, when that strike hit, describe the mood around the team and around the organization because you were right in the middle of it. Well, I, I think that they were like astonished. There were so many people. Now, there were veterans on the team, and they right. certainly had been through a bit of that before. Yep. But the young players, uh, the, the, the people that were around me in the broadcast circles, it was all brand new to them. And you mentioned – you know, I probably went through something. Well, I did. In my very mm-hmm. first year of baseball, 1981, yeah. we missed 50 games. Yeah. And I went from broadcasting at Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium to Tacoma, Washington, and Spokane. <laughs> and I was also in, uh, oh, where else did I go? I can't remember where I went now. Yeah. I mean, it was so weird to me mm-hmm. to miss 50 games in my very first mm-hmm. season. But yep. That 1995, it was, it was strange. Spring training was weird. I mean, yeah. 
you know, the PR department does a great job in, in producing some bios and things like that, like on Mark Knudsen, you know, brought up in Colorado, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Right. But for replacement players, who <laughs> yeah. knew who these guys yeah, we were? Have... There were? There were games I did at High Corbett Field. I made names up. They were my <laughs> high school friends because nobody had their name. They had two 97s playing in the mm-hmm. game, three 99s. I don't know who they were. So yeah. I just started making up. That's how I got through spring training because I wow. had fun doing that because it was so ridiculous. Yeah, we'll get to that again in a second. But talk a little about 1994, the end of the 94 season. Um, Rockies, like we said, were on the way to set an attendance record. Everything about the franchise was trending in the right direction. And then there's no games. Did you think at that point that the owners and players were going to sell this before the postseason, or did you have any idea it was going to linger all until next spring? I never thought it would uh, go past the World Series. I never thought that the World Series would be denied right. to the fans. I never believed that. And as deep as that uh, division was between ownership and the Players Association, I'm starting to get these weird feelings again all over again from 1994. Yeah, I, and it, it, it's such a different landscape. Feel, this is yeah. strange. It is. It is strange. And it's a different landscape now, though. I mean, I'm, I mentioned this to you when we were talking earlier in the week. Uh, Back then, Bud Selig, the commissioner, was, a, was an owner of the Milwaukee Brewers. I obviously played for Bud. I knew him well. He was a fan first. He was a former season ticket holder from the Milwaukee Braves. He bought the Seattle Pilots, moved him to Milwaukee. He was a genuine fan. He would come in the locker room and talk to us like a fan. And so when he sat down at the bargaining table, he legitimately was making the case for small market franchises to be able to compete. And he's in a situation then that the owners are not far from United because they had far different agendas. You had Bud and some small market franchise owners. Then you had George Steinbrenner on the other side who said, forget this, whatever the players want, I don't care. I don't want a salary cap. I don't want any of that stuff. And so the owners had this internal division going as well as they had uh, battling with the players union. So it was a very difficult time. They weren't unified at all. Players, on the other hand, you had Don Fear and Gene Orza and the Players Association lawyered up to the hilt. I mean, Don would talk to us in spring training and get us all riled up and we're ready to go to war. And it was the, it is the still remains the best union in sports, maybe one of the best unions in, in the country. But it's totally flipped now. And it's totally flipped where you got Tony Clark, a former player now leading the alumnus or the Major League Players Association. Of course, he has lawyers all on his side. But Tony was here at the All-Star break and was talking to us about, uh, was we an alumni gathering, was talking to us about trying to preserve the integrity of the game from these silly rule changes and lack of competitiveness and all those types of things that the, that the players are pushing for now. And on the other side, you have the lawyers now, Rob Manfred, who described himself to Tony Clark as a transactional attorney. Uh, are you a baseball fan? I'm a transactional attorney. So they're looking to squeeze every penny out of this, like Don Fear and Gene Orza used to be doing. And it's created this different, totally different landscape, but the issues still are about how you split up the money. And back then the, there I mean, you tell me this. You worked for some small, small market teams like Oakland. There were teams back then that weren't making money. There were owners that were legitimately concerned about the game because the, the salaries were going up and their revenues really weren't. Well, that's very true. And the piece of the pie, I mean, why does it always have to come to a work stoppage of some sort? Yeah. Players strike or they lock them out, the owners do. Why can't these negotiations, why do they always have to go to this last second? Well, it's the millions of dollars. The game changed because of the money. The money changed players. Now, now, this is a different take on things, 
But from my perspective, when I broke it in 1981, I flew on the team plane. Yep. So did the writers. Yep. You remember that? Oh yes, walk. absolutely. You, you saw you, you, you know, oh, yeah. you saw these guys oh, all yeah, the absolutely. time, and, yep. and what and what we were, we were the voices of the team. So yep. we were part of the team. Yeah. And good and bad. Things, and it, it yeah, wasn't the PR absolutely. thing. It was good and bad. Yep. And when things changed financially, we were no longer in that position. Yep. We, I was exactly like, for example. Uh, Mark Kislin. I was exactly like a Woody Page, these these columnists. Mm-hmm. I was media all of a sudden. Yep. I was no longer a voice of a baseball team. Mm-hmm. I was media. Yeah. And it was because our power of the word, the spoken word, bothered a lot of players. And I could take this to the extent where I was shocked. Three years yeah. ago, I'm doing an event in Evansville, Indiana, the hometown of Don Manningly. And I just was talking with Don. He's a friend. He's a good guy. I really like him. I respect what he's done in the game. And I said, so let me interrupt you for a second. The best hitter I ever faced. Oh, yeah. I'll tell him that. I've got him him in January. I've told him that. He knows. He's the best hitter. He was such a, you know, if he hadn't had the back situation and played a little bit more, obviously he'd be a Hall of Famer. I mean, he, he was great. Well, what I said that day, Mark, and you could see me doing this, Mm -hmm. I said, well, what's it like to manage the Dodgers? You know, what's it like to be in that situation and uh, to have Vin Scully there? And he looked at me and he says, well, the players, they don't care for Vin Scully. I go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What are you talking about? This guy is the greatest baseball announcer who's ever lived. What do you mean they don't like him? And all of a sudden the light bulb went on and I, I felt what I'd always felt is that a lot of those players felt that he was negative towards yep. them right. as individuals. And see the thing the, the, the glory of, of, uh, of a guy like Scully who broadcast for 67 years <laughs> of major incredible. league baseball, yep. he, he was not a homer. Nope. He gave Mark Knutson kudos if he pitched against the Dodgers and threw a one hitter at Dodger Stadium. Yep. He didn't. He didn't. You know, act like the whole world had ended. He said this was a baseball game, and yep. tonight Mark Knutson took center stage over yep. Oral Hershiser. Yep. Period. That's the way he was. He was fair. Now, did he ever uh, criticize a player? Absolutely. He criticized the performance, not sure. the performance. Yeah, and, and that's and that's what he taught. Ab- absolutely. And I, having gone through journalism school at Colorado State and having learned that, that you are criticizing the performance and not the person. I didn't ever, my very first start in Houston, I know we're getting off track a bit, but my very first start in Houston, I got knocked around and the reporters were very sheepish about coming up to me after the game. And I'm like, you know, what? I, I, I would have booed too. I don't blame him for booing. It was bad. I was bad. So boo. Um, I never took it personally, but a lot of guys and most guys did take it personally. Uh, you know, back then you had newspapers and after you have a good game, you go buy the newspaper. After you have a bad game, you don't want to look at it. Okay. That's to me, that's fair. That's, you know, your job performance is out there for public, public consumption and public evaluation. So you're right. I never, I never looked at it that way, but nowadays, of course, they've changed that. And the, the broadcasters, and I don't know how you would have handled this in your day, are team employees and can't say a negative thing about a player. They just can't. And they can say, I, you know, they're not even allowed to be like coaches because when I write, I write like a coach, this should have been done this way. This wasn't done properly. So on and so forth. I can't even do that anymore. So I'm sure that part 
frustrates a lot of uh, current broadcasters. I know several who have told me that, that they would like to be more honest and, and honest in their critiques. Not, and well, you don't want to be constructive, a shill. Constructive in your critiques, right? You know who you're yeah. rooting for. It's not, no question who the hometown guy is rooting for, but be constructive in your critiques and they get to do that. And um, they don't get to do that anymore. And that's too bad. Yeah, you don't want to be a shill in this game because then your your whole uh, personality on the air, whether it's television or radio or the combination of the two, yep. the one thing that you take into consideration as a broadcaster of a Major League Baseball team is to have people believe what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're being a shill for the team, that's exactly how it comes off because we're not all great at shilling. <laughs> we're not great at that. And, and people have eyes. They see what happens. They know what yes. went right or wrong. And so it's great when the, when the home team announcer gets excited about a great moment from the home team. That's fine. But if he does something poor, you kind of want to hear him to be – and, again, to their defense, they're not allowed to. They are absolutely not allowed to be critical. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of sad. But um, So I'm, I'm guessing back in the days of, this, of the strike, you were free to talk about – did you talk about when it was coming up to the time when you knew that you knew the strike deadline was there, did you guys talk about that on the air? Did you say you to, know, the this might be the of, to the extent of what we knew information wise, right. we got information from the team, but we also talked to the players. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Todd Zeal in 1994, mm -hmm. and uh, he was talking constantly about what the meetings were about. He he was great at giving a press conference that was a non press conference. He would wow. pick certain guys and go sit down with them on the bench and go, here's what's really happening behind the scenes. And I think it's important wow. that you yeah. know this. So, yeah, yeah you, you did your homework. But, it, again, it had to be balanced. I had to be able to talk to the players from their right. perspective right. and from the ownership. Were the, were the owners open with you back then? Was, were Dick and Charlie, Jeremy McMorris was around at the time. Did they share with you what was going on? Uh, not so much unless you really approached them. But, you know, Jerry was – you know, pushed into the forefront yeah, he, yeah, he because of his experience with unions mm -hmm. and all those things. Yep. And so they really, he was fresh meat for them, yep. Yep. Uh, for Bud Sealy. He was yep. fresh. That's and right. they said, you know, you come in here and you wear the white hat, you do what you got to do and see what happens. But yeah, they didn't give as much information as the players did, but they were open and they would answer certain questions and uh, they didn't play, you know, they weren't political about it. Right. You know, they had their had interest, like you said. The had owners be, yeah. had their interest, but they had fractured ownership. Oh, big time. You know, all throughout baseball. I yeah. mean, look, look at the one thing that I got to say, and I know you're a fan of Bud Selig's. Mm -hmm. and I liked and, and respected Bud Selig right. because of what you 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 went into. You, didn't, you delved into it, but you didn't extend it okay. like I would like to. And okay. that is this. He loved baseball yep and so he looked at that like he would his prized grandchild yeah boy or girl he's going to protect it he's going to protect that child and yep. baseball he did his best to protect baseball rob manford i don't know if he's to the point of loving baseball so much that he will create something positive out of all of this and and make this the game it's supposed to be your your job as commissioner mm -hmm. is to keep this game alive you know the, the game already has enough problems not enough kids in america are playing the game of baseball yeah let's face it it's gotten expensive it's gotten it's really expensive very expensive and the travel yep. you know, yep. the, the, the 
uh, pressure put on the parents, but I want him to be, uh, I, I, he doesn't have to be an ambassador for the game, but, but he has to protect those who are ambassadors for the game. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I don't think that's his wheelhouse. <laughs> I, I don't, don't either. But I, and I think he, um, you know, my friend, Dan Evans, you know, Dan well from white Sox. Dan tells me that Manfred loves baseball, loves the game. He said, to what extent, though? I think he, he, yes, he's an arm of the owners. He has to do and say what the owners do. Do, but I think at some point, a, a good commissioner and Bud, I think honestly, and people are going to laugh at it. I think he's the best commissioner baseball's ever had. The game had unprecedented growth after that '94 strike, a World Series was lost. After that, the next rest of Bud's tenure, unprecedented growth, unprecedented changes, unprecedented improvements. Uh, look at point out to another commissioner whose tenure has ended like that. I, there just isn't. Bowie Kuhn, no, I, you know, didn't work like that. Faye Vincent, Bart Giamatti didn't get enough time. So I don't know. I, I, I think he gets a bad rap, but he, Manfred lacks that. And you, you talked about it. Body language, facial expressions, verbiage, the way you talk, you could tell, Bud. you always knew Bud was a baseball fan. You always did. He'd come in the locker room and talk baseball with us. I can't see Manfred doing that kind of stuff. I just, I think he's become a, you mentioned Shill earlier. He's a shill for the owners. And I think he's lost credibility with players when he talks about things like moving the mound back a foot, you know, and stealing first base. And we're going to experiment with this rule in the independent leagues. Well, it's a stupid idea. Why bother expanding with it? I mean, experimenting with it. It's a stupid idea. And so I think he's lost some credibility with players in that regard. And he's certainly lost credibility with media uh, for for these stances. And I I don't know if that's going to affect negotiations very much, but it would be nice to have somebody on the other side of the table who cared as much about the game as Tony Clark does. Right. And Tony Clark does love. Oh yes. And that's an enormous uh, bit of pressure on his shoulders to be in that position, but he knew what it was going to be like going in. So, so he's fortified. He's got a lot of great people behind him. Yep. It's, it's a piece of the pie. Just divvy it up the way it's supposed to be. Don't be one-sided and don't be selfish. Well, I think well, you remember you were around in 1984 in mid 80s with the collusion situation. The owners got caught uh, red handed colluding to hold down salaries. Um, they now the players were fussing. It's been two or three years, but they were fussing about the lack of long term contracts for guys over 30. But the owners can't be called. It can't be called collusion if you have evidence to back you up. And they do. They have analytics data now to so, show that a guy's performance drops after 30 years old. So the union's response was, well, if that's the case, then we got to start paying guys earlier. You can't make them wait six years for arbitration anymore. You can't wait, make them wait to, to go to our, to get, become free agents. So I think the issue here now is right. That piece of the pie is there, but it's got to go to the younger guys now, as opposed to, so if you're not going to pay the older guys with good reason, of course, the Mets don't care how old you are, they'll pay anyway, but there's most teams are, are being careful about that and they should be. But the players have to be able to be arbitration eligible before three years and be a free agent before six years for this thing to get settled. Well, I think uh, a great example of how important it is for Major League Baseball players. Remember when it was the end of the 2011 season and the St. Louis Cardinals had that great World Series yep. come from behind, you know, David Freeze, yep. the one-man show in game six. And then they, the Cardinals would beat the Texas Rangers mm-hmm. and win the World Series. And then, of course, they had to make a decision about yep. Albert Pujols. Right. Albert Pujols would have taken any amount of money to stay in St. Louis. Really? He still lives there. He, he felt such 
uh, I, I don't know, pressure would be the correct word, but there was an awful lot on him because of the Players Association. Explain this, yeah, Mark. Because that's true. That's I don't very think true. The fans understand if you're the number one yep. free agent, yep. you are, are going to bat, so to speak, yep. for every other major league baseball. Absolutely player. right. Absolutely right. And, I, and that's where that's where Albert Pujols had his heart broken by the game of baseball. Yeah. He wanted to stay in St. Louis. He was willing to take less, but the Players Association no. would not allow that. He never wanted to go to Anaheim. The first yeah. house he sold is the one in California. He couldn't wait to get out of there. Still lives in St. Louis. Still does all his charity work in St. Louis. Yeah. The guy just wanted to play baseball. But yeah. when you're that good and you're the number one free agent, there's another added element to oh, all yeah. of this. Well, that, people, uh, the fans don't understand. No, they didn't. And I, that's why I told people that there was no chance. There was zero chance Nolan Arenado was going to opt out of his contract at the end of his past season. The reason being was he was not going to get that kind of offer from somebody else in free agency because he's turned 30 and the players union does not allow you to take a pay cut. They just don't, because like you said, there's a trickle down effect to the other guys. So Nolan has this $35 million contract. Now, Chris, they're talking about Chris Bryant, who at the one time, those two guys were comparable, right? They were both the third baseman. Bryant was the M actually the MVP. Bryant's looking at a contract $10 million less than Arenado currently has as a free agent. And so I, I try to explain to people what, what you just so eloquently put. Players Union, because they, they told me one time, you're not signing until we tell you you can sign. They told me in 1990, some of the other guys got to sign first. So we create the right landscape. You're not signing until we can tell you, we tell you, you can sign. And that's how it works. And that's the way the system is set up. Um, there's good and bad to that. It, help, it benefits most guys. But in the case of like an Albert Pujols, I can see where it would, you know, the hometown discount was not on the table. There's no way his agent or the union was going to allow that to happen. So that's sad that he didn't get to finish out like he wanted to, but you know, maybe it explains why a guy like Bryce Harper wants to sign a 15-year contract instead of a five-year contract, so he didn't have to make that decision. Right. That's. I just. I think about the fans first. You know, as a broadcaster, that's what I always do. Mm -hmm. I. I, yeah. I. I know I had my loyalty to the team. I understood that. Mm -hmm. I understood my loyalty to the sponsor. You know, they yep. were important because oh, yeah. they're the ones who who you know put the money in right. to support it. But the fans were my number one. They were my number one because as long as I told the truth. See, I got in trouble from a, a former general manager. And if I said Dan O'Dowd's name, you'd know who I'm talking about. Hmm. <laughs> and, and He's uh, media now, but he, he's media now, right? I know. Isn't that interesting? That's amazing. Yeah. I go back to a game at Shea Stadium. Juan Pierre had just been brought up. To the major leagues he's playing in his first couple of games in the major leagues and the next thing i know i get this unbelievable uh tap on the shoulder from jay alvis who is a dear friend of mine yep. i've known for 30 almost 40 yeah. years yeah from oakland yeah and he goes i don't know what you did to upset dan but he's really upset i'm in the middle of the broadcast it's a commercial break and i go he's on the phone right there and he hands me the phone i go Dan, this is Wayne. What's wrong? He goes, well, you need to uh, you need to build up Juan Pierre. We've just brought him up and we, we've got to do this together. We have to make the fans understand why Juan Pierre is our center fielder. Well, it goes back to a point you made. When you criticize the performance, it's not the performance. Well, it was a situation. Let's put you on the mound. 
it's the bottom of the eighth inning of a tie game runners at first base. There's one out and the guy hit a soft liner into right center field and Pierre had no back. He's playing center field. He came in, made a diving stab for the ball, missed it. It bounds all the way beyond him. And all he had to do was play in front of him, keep mm-hmm. that runner going from first to second, keep the double play in order, and you get out of the inning. Instead, mm-hmm. he makes the dive. And that's what I said. You know, it's his first, yep. it's his first week in the major leagues. This is a mistake he will not make in the future. He'll mm-hmm. learn from it. That's all I said. Oh, Dan didn't like that at all. And I said, Dan, <laughs> on the phone, I said, Dan, what did you want me to say? Where, where is my credibility? Yeah. I explain what he should have done. Is that not what he should have done? He goes, yeah, that's exactly what he should have done. Then mm-hmm. I go, then that's what I do on the broadcast. Yeah. I'm not perfect. I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm not the, the greatest baseball uh, announcer that ever lived and could tell you everything that they should be doing on the field. But that was pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah. <laughs> and it cost him, uh, cost him a win in New York that night. But mm-hmm. those, you know, those things were few and far between. That, that just didn't happen with the Rockies. It didn't happen yeah. with other teams. Yeah. Let's um, fast forward now to the, it's a, it was a bleak winter in 1994, 1995, but people are saying, well, you know, we'll get this done before spring training happens. And then we start getting these phone calls. I got one. Would you be interested in being a replacement player? I hung up the phone as quick as I answered it because there was no chance in the world I was going to do that. I'd been retired for what, three years, but um, no, that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I know most of the guys, I know a few guys did make that decision and probably wish they hadn't at this point. But you as a broadcaster are hearing about replace, the idea of replacement players. This was supposed to put pressure on the union to finish the, the negotiations in the owner's favor. They wanted to put in a salary cap and all those things that the union would never agree to. What were you thinking when you first heard the term replacement players? Because we may hear that again. Who knows? Oh, I know. I, it, if they do that, they're going to lose more yeah. people yeah. than they ever lost in 1994. True. It would be a horrible decision. The replacement players, I just knew that going to spring training, I had a whole lot more homework ahead of me to try to make those, you know, ball games somewhat uh, right. presentable, somewhat fun for me. And that's really what it came down to. I did an awful lot of homework in 1995 in spring training just so I could get through the broadcast. And, and, some, cre- and some creative writing, it sounds like. You created oh, yeah. characters. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Butch Rowe was my high school uh, buddy for years and years. <laughs> Uh, he was playing shortstop in one game. <laughs> Dave Nobles was pitching in another. All high school buddies. Because oh, I had no idea who these people were. Oh, it was my just, goodness. It was an unbelievable experience. But well, the thing that broke my heart, Mark, was going to Coors Field. Yep, I was just going to say. That exhibition series yep. with the Yankees. Yankees, yep. And those weren't the Jankies. Nope, they weren't. And I remember Reggie, <laughs> ja- Reggie Jackson was there for that. And it was just – they were trying their darndest to make this a real baseball game. But you just – you looked out there and you're like <laughs> – you know, Butch Casty, who are those guys? I mean, it, oh, just, absolutely. It, it was, and I felt bad for a lot of the players because they were thinking they were getting their one big shot and they were, you know, going to be big shots, but everybody knew it was a joke. People who showed up to those games were showing up to see Coors Field for the first time. And um, it, it just, it was an unfortunate situation. And it, uh, it didn't get settled till the end of March. Uh, actually, was it in late April when we started uh, the regular season, I believe that year. Um, missed a bunch of games. You mentioned the 1981 season when they actually split the season into two halves because they missed so many games. Um, do you think there's a chance they miss games this year? I mean, we might have a goofy spring training again, but do you think they could actually miss regular season games? 
I don't think it would be to the betterment of baseball. Well, I, yeah. I think these fans, Montreal showed that. Yeah. Montreal lost baseball because nobody cared after that. That broke yeah. their hearts too. It just yeah. hurt those fans and they weren't a whole lot in number, but they were quality. People they were in loyal. Montreal. They were there every game yep. and, and they loved the Montreal Expos. The, you know, I just can't see it happening. I, you know, people are already upset with certain teams that just aren't very competitive. Right. And the union, that's the union's main point and contention in this debate is the teams that won't be competitive, won't spend money on salaries and will refuse to be competitive. Right. It's, it's the, how do you spend the money? That, yeah. That's what I look at. Yeah. You know, every team has a certain amount of money that they can produce to, to try to make yeah. something good between the lines. But my gosh, some of these teams, these stupid right stupid decisions yeah I well mean, you, you, insane. You, you worked for the oakland a's when they were struggling financially um they're just trying to find a way to get by today every team is making money before they put a single butt in a single seat they, they exactly. are they're making money which is tony clark's main point of contention that listen we there's no motivation for teams like baltimore to to actually try to win because you don't have to win to make a profit what kind of business are, can you be in where you don't even have to try you can be terrible at your business and still make a profit and that's where a lot of these major league teams are. And that's the union's main point of contention moving forward is we have to change this, not spend more money, but change how it's spent so that teams like Baltimore will, you know, spend money. I, the great article by Tom Verducci earlier this week in Sports Illustrated on SportsSI.com, the average major league baseball salary now is lower. I mean, excuse me, the minimum major league baseball salary is lower than it is for the NHL. And baseball's minimum pay, actually, if you add in the cost of inflation, the cost of living, has gone down since the mid, from since five years ago. So is that right? A, I did not. Yeah, know it's that. a great article. I, I really encourage you to read it. It's, uh, okay. Very informative. Um, and those are things that the union you have to. The only way to adjust that is to is to adjust things to younger ages to get these guys paid when they're younger, and let the older guys, the Max Scherzers, can make their money in their thirties. But you know, if a guy's depending on being thirty and then now becoming a free agent and getting a chance to make his, make money, it's not going to happen for him. They're not giving out those kind of contracts to guys that age. So um, that's the union's main point of contention. I don't think they'll miss games for this reason. And you, you kind of alluded to it. Obviously, it's money related. But the new kid in town in terms of baseball sponsorships is sports betting. Um, and sport, sports betting is, in, is putting so much money into sports now, all these sports leagues and all these sports teams. It's kind of I look at kind of like Vegas back in the day where the the, the organized crime people were running Las Vegas. And there was no problems, right? You had no crime. You had no issues in Las Vegas because organized crime wasn't going to put up with it. I kind of look at sports better sports betting industry, like saying, guys, you're going to play. You're going to play because we have too much in, at stake. You have too much at stake. You're going to play. And I think the pace of play is no longer an issue. They don't care about that. They can, uh, or you haven't heard anything about it since the middle of last season when sports betting started to become a big thing in baseball. And you're not going to hear anything more about pace of play because longer games benefit the sports betting industry that you can bet on who can, who's going to win in extra innings. So I just, I don't see them. I think, as you said, there's so much at stake now. There's so much money at stake. There's so much credibility at stake. I can't see them missing any games, but I can see this thing lingering into the first part of February, early February before the owners and, and finally, you know, big market owners, small market owners finally get together and say, okay, we're going to give them back a little bit here because we got too much to lose. Right. They both, each side has oh, yeah. so much to lose. Oh, yeah. but, but think about, think about the 1995 St. Louis Cardinals. Again, this is an insight for the fans. 
Okay. That franchise was sold by August Bush's son, who wasn't a baseball fan. So they sold in 1995. If you can imagine a franchise selling for $150 million, they got the stadium, the old Bush Stadium. Yep. They had the two parking structures. And then they bought this little uh, parcel of land with it, which now has a hotel where a lot of the teams stay because it's really close to the ballpark. So those are the items that were sold for $150 million. In one year, the St. Louis Cardinals were going to get a fresh new ballpark. Yep. They turned and sold those two parking structures, which you've seen, the east yep. and the west, and that little small parcel of land for $91 million. Yep. So they are into the Cardinals for $59 million. That's the investment as recent as 1995. Wow. And then they got their new ballpark. And like you said, all of these teams make money before yeah. that first yeah, pitch what, is thrown. And, and what are the Cardinals worth today? At, yeah. at least $2 billion, yeah, Somewhere exactly. in that range of yeah, $2 billion. Exactly. So, so unfortunately, you and I didn't have that investment. No, we, I missed out on that one. But uh, that, again, that, it's a great deal to be in. And, it's, and the good owners get separated from the bad owners by how madly they want to win. And no one expects every single owner to be a baseball fanatic who's all driven like Steve Cohen is. Um, but you hope that your owner is one of those guys because those are the guys that win and those are teams that compete. And um, it's unfortunate when, when they're not. And I think I don't see them putting in a salary floor, which some people have talked about because they'll never, there's never going to be a salary cap in baseball. The players will never go for that. So I, I, I'm with you. I, I hope they just find, find a way to divvy up the pie to everyone's satisfaction and keep the game rolling in the right direction. Because again, you don't even have to do it right to make money. So just own it and sit on like the equity is going to take care of the, the next four generations of your family. And the longer this, and I understand this is a negotiation point mm -hmm. right. by, by what they did this mm -hmm. past week. I understand that. But the longer it goes, the longer it's in the media, the longer it's on your television news and yep. on radio talk shows, the more those fans are going to be turned off. And those are the fans who want to be baseball fans. Yeah. They want to be at the ballpark. They enjoy that. But the more they read and it's any kind of negativity, they're going to find See, something I, else to do. Yeah, I, I think that, well, if, yeah, if, certainly if games are lost, that's absolutely going to be the case. Even if spring training games are lost, because a lot of people, myself included, I'm taking my high school team down to, to, to Arizona in March um, to hopefully see some spring training games with real players. So. I think if, you know, if it's settled in January, February, it's going to be forgotten. People aren't even going to remember. Okay, no problem. It, you know, there, no games lost. Never, they got it done. It doesn't matter. Um, there will be people that are suffering right now. Major League players who can't work out or get treatment in their certain places. You know, a lot, a lot of free agents are sitting there like Trevor Story out in limbo. So it's, not, it's, it's a hindrance to a lot of people right now, but it's not debilitating to the game like it will be if they miss, if they miss any games. Yeah, I agree. I, I just... I, I just hope that uh, whatever ploys are used, they're, they're new people. You know, like yeah. you said, Donald, Donald Fear's not here anymore. Oh, it's all new people. And, uh, Bud Selig and those owners, there are a lot of new owners in this Almost game. all, almost all of them are new from, tw yeah. from 26 years ago. So it'll be interesting, you know, like the Dick Monfords of the world, mm -hmm. you know, very, very 
uh, shrewd businessman. Mm-hmm. He gets it. He understands. Mm-hmm. And and I hope he has a, a say in all of this. Because well, he's, he's got he, a oh, he does. He does. He's front and center right now in, in the owner's negotiating group. He's he's one of the people they're putting forth. And I think um, his his dealings with unions is, as a, you know, in the cattle business, probably a reason he's, he's an upfront with this. And again, Dick's going to advocate on the small market side of things. He wants cost containment. He wants uh, cost certainty, all those types of things that, that, owner, that ownership wants. But he also realizes, I think, that to not play games, to miss games would be crippling to the Colorado Rockies, crippling. So oh. I think he's going to figure out a way to, to help facilitate a settlement, you know, at least sometime early in the winter, early next year. Well, I just can't thank you enough for even having me on. It's, well, I've enjoyed uh, it. I've enjoyed talking. We always enjoy podcasts. Me and Manny like Manny. me and Manny like talking baseball with you, and um, we'll do this again and again. Thank you for for your contributions on the open. We're going to have to change it up because we can't keep uh, you know Manny can't be out at third the entire time. But um, no, whatever you need, you let me. Know. Ellis Burks told us that Manny was out by a mile at third base, so that's all. <laughs> that's all we know. Ellis Ellis spoke, and I I agreed with him. Manny said he wanted to see it under review, but Ellis said it wasn't even close. So we'll, we'll go with that. Anyway, we appreciate it very much. We're going to skip the closer because he's uh, not with us tonight, but uh, we want to thank Wayne Hagen for joining us on the Park Adjusted Rockies podcast and be, stu- be, soon- be sure to tune in next week with us. Manny will be back and Wayne will have you on as a guest one of these times so you can give Manny a hard time. Sounds great. Thank right, you, thanks. Mark. There he goes. Wayne Hagen. It's been the Rock- Park Adjusted Rockies podcast. We'll be sure to join us next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.